Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, you who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Folks, and welcome to Diving into the Wreckage. What is this, six now? I'm not sure what it is, five or six. We finally made it. Uh, Sean KB here, of course, with C. Derek Varn. What's up, man? Nothing much. We finally made it to to the shadow of China. <laughs> we did. Something that the shadow was, was kind of overhanging us ever since we first started talking months ago about... Um, kind of a legacy uh, in the United States politically and otherwise of uh, the Bernie campaign and what followed from that. This has been on our syllabus, and now finally we're tackling it. Uh, I will say that uh, you and me have had a couple false starts on this one, a couple things interceded there, and I think that a lot of the research we had done initially for a, an episode that was meant to be recorded two months ago uh, two and a half months ago has been superseded by events because things keep moving so quickly in the world, but uh, we're here to finally do it, and um, just know that it, by the end of this, uh, when this comes out, events might have, you know, overcome things again, but we're going to get into the, the some deep history, we're going to get into uh, geopolitics, importantly, we're going to get into political economy, and I think, too, what this means for the future of global capitalism and the world and ourselves, but also what it might mean politically. So, um, yeah, man. Uh, let's, let's get to it. I, one, one story I wanted to relate, uh, to start this whole thing off was, and I think I've told this before, but about a year or so ago, some rando DM'd me on Twitter and he saw the, you know, the things that I've posted, listened to the podcast, know that people like you and me, we like to study political economy. We like to look at the class struggle. We like to see things. Uh, locally, regionally, nationally, internationally in terms of class struggles and the possibility for overcoming. He sends me this DM that's like, listen, bro, he's like, you just have to relax. You're stressing yourself out so much. Like the white left, uh, of which I was, of course, included in the United States and in Europe, you guys don't have to worry about this stuff. The helmsman, Xi Jinping, is guiding China using the Communist Party guiding it towards a, uh, a a beautiful future of higher stage socialism and then communism. And eventually they'll overthrow the West, they'll build socialist civilization, and then you will be brought into this process. But in the meantime, just step back and just allow everything to unfold and align yourself with this particular project in whatever way that you could. And that was a pretty pretty profound direct message to get because it signified i mean i didn't take him up on the gambit of course although it's very tempting to do that i think and a lot of people have chosen that option and it was uh, more tempting before two weeks ago frankly 
but yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. So I, I think that like maybe what's going to be hanging over this uh, long conversation might be um, the sort of move towards a, a sort of dungism on the part of the uh, Anglosphere left. Um, a lot of despair uh, with how shitty politics are in our country. And maybe this, of course, probably this is attached to the sense that they are now starting to become for the first time in, I don't know, 30 years or so, another pole of attraction in terms of like the global geopolitics and potentially the, or definitely the global economy. So maybe people feeling forced to align one way or another in this instance. So I don't know what you think of that, but I thought it was a, an interesting way maybe to start a, a frank discussion. I think uh, we're going to try to be humble in this discussion. Uh, we're going to try to be judicious when it comes to understanding what China is, uh, what it was, and what it could be. So with that, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, um, I want to start off with a bunch of caveats. One, I'm not a Mandarin speaker, and I, I think that's important to note. Um I do have Mandarin speakers in my life. Um, my one of my closest friends is a sinologist. Uh, um, I have been to China on no less than four occasions. Um, I am my introduction to radical politics, believe it or not, and most people don't know this about me. Uh, the first form of leftism I was attracted to after leaving the right and giving up on kind of facile liberalism was um, post-RCP Kasama Project Maoism. Mm -hmm. um, and my reasons for that are complicated, um, but needless to say, I went into the communist project wanting to be sympathetic with prior uh mlm thought now we're not going to spend time in fact this could be a whole episode on and of itself about the divisions in western maoism and the divisions in chinese maoism about what that actually means because like with trotskyism i can find somebody who's into mao zedong sop uh marxist leninist maoism marxist leninist maoism the world etc and align them, actually can find a parallel in other politics most of the time that's more meaningful than what Maoism in the West is. But I came to this with that set of assumptions. Um, I lived in South Korea for a little over three years, and um, uh, would say that the Korean left and so much that there is a South Korean left uh, um, has is often trying to figure out how it relates to China and to the Japanese Communist Party and to India. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my context for my complication on these issues. Furthermore, I started reading more and more about the development of the CCP and what Mao and Zhou Enlai actually did. And while people will be surprised, I don't think you can see it, um, of the communist figures that I actually have, like, portraits of in my house, I actually keep a portrait of Joe and Lai, which people would be probably confused by when they think I'm an ultra-leftist, <laughs> which in some ways I am. Um, but uh, I have a very complicated view on China. The one thing I will say, however, is that a lot of the kinds of people who you are listening to buy into this G as the Great Helmsman theory, 
come from different parts of Chinese society, and the people in the West often do not realize that they are getting and exposed to the most elite strata. Hmm. I mean, I'm not going to call out particular podcasters because your your, uh, your your fans might be. I mean, your fans might listen to them, but I will say that. Chinese expatriates raised in the uh, who are educated in the West and do not live in China now who uh, have very pro PRC politics and say certain things should be taken with a grain of nationalist salt. Mm. Um, they might they they might they probably are from the Chinese definition communist, but they would be from factions and stratas that would be considered probably the right in China itself in so much that there would be, you could say that there's right now, again, China calls anything against the state rightist because the the Chinese new left was deemed as rightist. So that word just in the Chinese context tends to mean just anti-state. So no one would call themselves a right-wing faction of the PRC. However, there are Confucianist uh, factions in the PRC. There are people who believe a la, um, <laughs> you know, people who believe in Carl Smith and in the great coming clash of civilizations in the Chinese, in, in the Chinese apparatus, um, who, who would pick up the traditional Stalinist line that, you know, all this new sexual experimentation that you're seeing in Chinese cities is uh petite bourgeois deviation. Um and also and also and they would add to that against Chinese and Confucian cultural values. Um which would make Mao spin so fast in his brain that it could be a, like an an energy generator. Um all that said, I have been more and more careful about what I say about China in response to Western obsessions about G, about G, about G Dungism, etc. Um, one of the responses I've had when I've talked about this, where I actually said that I that G is legitimately popular, but that that the the Western Dungists don't understand the actual developmental history of China and mm. illustrate this all the time and are actually buying in propaganda, not just of the uh, of the CPC, but of a specific faction of the CPC that would be able to have uh, large scale influence in the West. And I think that is should not be lost on people. People who read China Daily should realize that China Daily is about drumming up foreign investments. <laughs> like, <laughs> like um, it is not like a Maoist, uh, or, you know, even though it's it's going to take a very pro-Chinese state line. Um, furthermore, uh, I, I believe that this has been further complicated by the Russia-Ukraine war mm-hmm. um, and the crisis around that. And because uh, both parties, uh, uh, Eurasianist tendencies in, in United Russia have a staked interest in portraying China as on their side. And the West, particularly NATO, has a distinct interest in portraying China as on their side. And yet, at the same time that I'm seeing this come out of even the CIA, I'm literally watching Chinese teachers take... Uh, 
positions on both sides. I'm watching media criticism be allowed that takes positions on both sides. Um, coming out of China, we've seen China actually condemn certain uh, Russian uh, Russian actions while also occasionally pushing Russian agitprop. We've seen China not uh, uh, abstain as opposed to support the veto strategically. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like India did, and just like India did actually in the, for example, in the, in the USSR-Afghan war, which we reported as uh, a criticism of, of the USSR, but we report this as China supporting Russia. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I want to say just on a, on a basic geostrategic analysis, China's clear security interests more closely aligned with Russia, with the exception of the claim on sovereign territory, which they're afraid of having to deal with. Mm. But their economic interests, they know, even with de-dollarization, that Russia, since it did not build up its industrial consumer base capacity uh, when it was the USSR and still didn't during the Yeltsin to Putin transition and has kept most heavy manufacturing, even in direct resource extraction, are in military arms, Mm. that it can't use Russia as part of its developmental regime for its its production, for its overproduction, to right. maintain things in the long term. Right. So, and inflation threatens its goals, even though it can control its own currency, it can't control how everything is traded in the global market. Um, and it's also done things like, you know, not pick up tons of Russian gas and oil during this time period. Um, instead, it's tried to weaken um, U.S. hold over places like Saudi Arabia, over our insufficient support for the genocide in Yemen. Hmm. So when people look at this and try to say that Russia and China are clearly on the same side and that China is clearly somehow good hmm. as compared to the West, they are frankly projecting. Hmm. Um, but at the same token, um, and I, I'll, we're going to have to talk about a lot of stuff when we come to this because we, we have climate change and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. China has been a far more responsible actor in handling this stuff geopolitically than any other major power. Um, uh, I would also say India has been doing a more nuanced thing than people realize. Um, but India's competition is with China. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and so, for example, while it's supporting Russia in this kind of BRICS coalition and denazification coalition, it's also joining the Quad and setting up something like NATO on the Russia-Chinese borderlands. So, yeah. So, like, you know, like things are not as simple as they're being portrayed by these. I, yeah. No, I, I, I think that's all very well taken, um, and I, I think that the the tendency to want to to slot the uh, China. Um, into one of these particular boxes or not, and to uphold it as um, um, a separate developmental project that could be followed perhaps by in, in other instances by other places, including ourselves, um, really does does a disservice to the to the kind of nuances of um, 
not just the geopolitics, which is, I think, very chaotic. I think what you're describing is something, it's, it's not, there, there, there's something is in the process of being formed, uh, perhaps some new stability, but right now we're in extremely unstable times. And I think that one of the benefits that China has seen in terms of its political leadership, and this is based on its institutions and structures that it's built over the last 60 years or so, uh, with the, with a strong party at the center is, uh, their, ruling class, their elites, their uh, planners, their intellectuals, their politicians, um, being able to be far more uh, forward-thinking, far more um, ruminative about their particular place in the world, and being able to plan 20, 30, 40 years into the future, as opposed to, of course, uh, the United States as a declining hegemon. And so... Yeah, but but but, uh, but, then, but then a lot of people a lot of people see that then as as some um, as some quality of their um, uh, or, or or some quality of their forward thinking then that that um, if only we would rise to that we could potentially be doing the same thing when I think that there's there it's the difference between a decline and a rise in terms of world powers. Exactly. I actually pointed this out to, I will say the person here, Cole Zhao was talking about Chinese military propaganda versus Western military propaganda. Western military propaganda is, is individualistic to get people to join their military. Chinese military propaganda shows an organic society. And my response to him was, you're completely right, but look at what U.S. military propaganda was in the 1930s. There you go. Like, yeah. like your corrupt business elites can be slightly more controlled, but we could control our business elites a lot better in the early 20th century than we can now. From the 1930s and, to the 1970s, especially. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, how is what, even, even in looking at your GDP ratios, for example, uh, you know, you're not, you look like something that's, that's been able to lift people out of poverty, uh, because mainly because, because of the rural developments of Maoism and then the urban economic developments of, uh, of Dungism. But Dungism, uh, I'm going to say something that, that, that will probably upset a lot of people. Please, please. We're uh, still on the free section and then we'll yeah. have more on the paywall section. Uh, Dungism, uh, did, did that off of the backs of China's rural population. So, uh, Dong Ping Han, uh, who is, you know, I, he's never called himself a Maoist, but his rhetoric is Maoist. He defends a great leap forward. Um, you know, um, and, and, uh, uh, mobile, uh, Guao and, and people like that have pointed out that, uh, prior to, uh, the Dung reforms, um, you saw, an increased standard of living almost exponentially from 35 or six, like mm -hmm. he's that low right after world war two up to uh, like 59 by the mid fifties. And even through the great leap forward, you're still seeing um, a lot of life expectancy gains uh, during the Deng Xiaoping period um, up until about six years after Tiananmen square, you literally see uh, a massive slowing down of life expectancy gains, and you see the Gini co the Gini coefficient the coefficient of inequality in China go crazy. Mm -hmm. Now I used to point out the people um, for you know 
and I probably did it for too late because I wasn't as aware of certain developments in, chi- developments in China after I left South Korea, that the Gini coefficient in China was worse than even the United States. That is no longer true, by the way, and I can get into how that changed. But um, uh, from from that entire time period, life expectancies froze. Dong Ping Han and Mobile Guao actually say that the Tiananmen Square incident was a weird coalition of what they call, you know, uh, students who have been seduced by foreign powers uh-huh. into believing reactionary rhetoric, but they also said it was almost a legitimate peasants' revolt uh-huh. because they had lots of support in the countryside after the, the Great Cultural Revolution's policies were reversed in Deng Xiaoping and the work point system ended, and the work point system is uh, was how like the people's schools done. Uh, most schooling, uh, particularly for women in rural China, was privatized. Hospitals were privatized, even though doctors were paid by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, doctors, rural doctors had to take money in cash, which, which meant you actually had a complete falling out of the rural healthcare system. And instead of, uh, investing in that, what, what, um, Chinese leaders did until Hu Jintao, um, actually, was to increasingly rely on the uh, the internal passport system uh-huh. just to stop people from fleeing into the cities and becoming a lump of, uh, lump of pro- proletariat. Right. Now, Hu Jintao realized that this could be a problem and started talking about developing a social democracy more like uh, 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 Northern Europe, um, which... Again, I'm always pointing that out to people. I'm like, okay, but you're telling me this is super communism, and yet you have Chinese leaders saying their aspirations is uh-huh. is north is northern European social democracy, and they can't do that yet, despite the fact that when Hu Jintao is saying this, they have 13% GDP growth. Uh-huh. Um, so during the Xi Jinping period, what you saw was a massive slowing of GDP growth, which I guess you'd expect. Um, uh, but they're still doing better than anyone in the West or the developing world. So people, yeah. but, but it is it is from 13 to 10. And Western planners used to say when China hits 10 percent, the, the the population revolt will never happen. And now they're like at six. Uh, the, this is going down to 5.5. And you know, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of uh, the hopes in the West of a, of a Chinese revolt, of course, uh, of the people is in the hopes that um, some sort of liberal democratic regime is going to arise. This was the great hope, of course, of um, integrating China into the global capitalist economy. That's actually not true. The great hope was to make a ton of profits um, in the 1970s, you know, overproduction, overaccumulation. Right, and, and to undercut uh, the, the Soviets. Those were the two great Undercut ones. the Soviets, yeah. Obviously, um, also the, the great social pact that was made in the West was um, cheaper, um, uh, consumer goods uh, in exchange for the smashing up of um, whatever workers' institutions. But I want to I want to step back because there's a lot on the table right now, and I think we should maybe deal with it historically. Um, you mentioned the sort of um, <laughs> I got a dog right here, the sort of uh, the nationalist um, uh, contingency uh, contingent within um, the uh, the party in China. Um, nationalism and the construction of not just a national state, but a national economy after the century of humiliation, as it was called, from uh, the first Opium War into the second uh, Sino-Japanese War uh, in the 1930s. Um, the, the project, there, were, there was the KMT, uh, which is 
considered to be like um, all fascist now. It's a very contradictory uh, party and social formation in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but becomes more and more right-wing and corrupt as time goes on. Yeah, the so yeah, Sin is a major figure to both the nationalists and the communists, and he considered himself a communist. I mean, yeah. So that's something we need to... Like a uh, revolutionary liberal, essentially. Right. Like a, right. a Jacobinite. Um, I, I mean, he considered... I guess he considered himself like a developmental Fabian socialist. Um, uh, and he's he, he's important still... Like, like the three principles of the people that is part of the KMT thing is still part of the, like the, uh, the, the CPC's own the, history the, and development. The anarchist movement in China, which was very important in the early 20th century, um, mostly liquidated itself into the KMT, you know, right. by the time the 19 teens and 20s come. So very contradictory, uh, party social formation, um, but you, people need to understand that this national and nationalist element is intrinsic to the the project um, coming out of the victory of, of 1949 for very real historical reasons, right? You had a uh, a country riven by civil war, warlordism, having been invaded uh, by the Japanese, much of its infrastructure right. destroyed, and having been ruled by foreign by foreign empires, literally for. In seven, in like several different dynasties, it's it, right. you know so. So um, there's there's like a, a um so at the same time as this is happening, of course, like the Western powers and the Japanese are using um, capitalist development <clears throat> to build incredible militaries that the Chinese uh, state cannot go up against. You had a, throughout Chinese history like a push and pull of centralization and decentralization of various monarchies. By the time the communists come to power in uh, 1949. You have a devastated uh, economic landscape, millions upon millions of people dead. You had the real devolution of political and economic power from a central state into like various kind of semi-autarkic provincial areas uh, mm -hmm. run very chaotically by various like local warlords that had to be overthrown, absentee landlords and whatnot. So in integral to the the um to the nineteen forty nine revolution and and what needed to be created at that time it was felt was not just the creation of a national economy for the first time in a hundred years or so, but also of course a reaction to this creating a, a, a state capacity for the first time in a long time. So whereas there was uh the implicit internationalism of course that comes from like this adherence to the classical workers movement this national project has always been an essential part of what Maoism means or what the Chinese uh, state project has been. So it's not like an aberration. And when you see all the, the, the back and forth within the political structures and the political debates and the various campaigns that happen in China, each one of these can't be seen separately outside the scope. You can't simply view them as the way that things were happening or even in theoretical relationship to, say, Marxism or even Maoism, right? There were serious constraints upon Chinese development that had to be overcome, oftentimes in very practical ways, right? So the entire revolutionary period from uh, 19, let's say, let's call it 1952 to 1978, when Deng comes in and starts the reforms, is a constant push and pull back and forth to try to figure out a way to catch up to the development of the rest of the world, to find a way in order to industrialize, uh, to create a large enough surplus that uh, China can not just join the rest of the world, but also essentially um, create a 
um, a socialist economy in a way that wasn't the same as the Soviet Union and high Stalinism, that instead understood the specific conditions that existed with China, especially with the peasant backbone of its uh, CPC um, and all that. So, again, like the political aspects of these things are really interesting and the theories of Maoism and whatever. But you have to understand that this entire project has been based on a developmental project, essentially, in order to bring China up. I might even I might even uh, um, echo the scholar Dr. Uh, Rebecca Carl that um, you should trace this period of revolutionary fervor and you should see it as multiple revolutions all the way back to the Boxer Rebellion. And in the Boxer Rebellion, uh, you have Western ideas in this case Christianity being sinicized uh, to to push out foreigners and as a kind of uniting function of this national, uh, you know, proto-nationalist movement. The, the other thing that you have to deal with is that Chinese nationalism, um, is a complicated phenomenon because China is not a culture. Uh, China is not a language. China is, um, China has several cultures. It's several languages. Its geographical borders are defined by a myriad of different empires. And they've fluctuated throughout history. Yes. Um, and that, that seems poorly understood by Western powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also led to a debate both within the Kuomintang and within uh, the CPC is how much would Chinese nationalism be Han nationalism mm. or civic nationalism? Mm. And at different times during all, both under Mao and in, and in the future, different elements have won. And this led to weird things, for example, uh, before the KMT took over Taiwan, Mao's position on Taiwan is that Taiwan should be an autonomous zone, like mm. say, uh, the Korean autonomous prefectures or whatever. Um, because of its unique history of both indigenous and non-Han Chinese ethnic groups like the Hakka mm-hmm. uh, on the island. Um, and when the KMT pulled their little stunt and hit out there after their civil war, after the Chinese civil war, um, that forced Mao, well, I should say for Mao reversed his position on that. Um, and there's all kinds of things like that where uh-huh. if you try to find, you know, particular Chinese leaders, whether it's Zhou Enlai, who I respect, or Lin Biao, who I can't figure out, or um, but a lot of people were into, you know, 10 years ago, um, or Deng Xiaoping, what you see is um, a, a spectrum of ideas that are all over the place. You also see that China... In the 50s and 60s, in the non-aligned movement, when it starts to finally try to settle down and work with India after the border war, so this is actually uh, late 60s into the 70s, and to try to peel India off of the Soviet orbit, Mm. um, goes and makes, uh, you know, goes and tries to make itself uh, a natural leader of the non-aligned movement. Doesn't really go so well, though, because at the time, uh, India try, uh, particularly, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, uh, treats Zhou Enlai as a junior partner, which did not go over well and increased the tensions there. Um, furthermore, um, you know, 
in this national period, they can't figure out how to relate to the Soviet Union. The Soviet uh-huh. Union is trying to reach out to, like, the Fabian socialists that run the Congress Party uh, and, uh, and India that Stalin had just, you know, thrown aside. Uh, Khrushchev makes four ways into them to try to pill them off from going into the U.S. orbit. Um, uh, but Khrushchev ends up having to back away from this to support China when during the first China-India border war. Uh-huh. It was in 62. Um, uh, this actually leads to an increase, like an increasing tension between China and the USSR and between China and India that continues to inform things today. Right. And, and it's led to things like trying to explain to people like your, like your anonymous friend here, Uh how, cause I'm like, well, why was China making four ways to the U S to defeat the Vietnamese? Uh Um, why was China, uh, one of the only two communist nations to formally recognize the Pinochet government, on whom Pinochet went and hung out at after his government fell in 1990. Um, why, why did all this happen? And I say this because at the same time, the things that I consider probably closest to what I would consider socialism in some ways were actually being experimented with within China itself yes. during, yeah. the, during the, during, particularly in rural China actually. Yeah. During the, 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 the people's pro, you know, proletarian culture revolution. During the entirety really of the, of the revolutionary period, which spans 25 years, you have incredible experiments. Right. And some of the experiments, like the barefoot doctors and the work point systems, the work point system, until the development of cybernetics in Allende's Chile, the work point system is actually one of the few things that doesn't require heavy management and they were able to democratize at a local level and still maintain the Chinese government. They, they managed to folks, they managed to abolish value. They really did do it. There was no way to compare different uh, labors to one another in an abstract way through a market. There was no connection between the amount of work put in and like uh, socially necessary labor time. It was allocated based on, you know, like uh, if you've ever worked in a restaurant, each server gets a certain amount of points, and that's how you know yeah. it comes out after that. I mean, they, they still had currencies, so like you, your work points could be turned into currency at the end of the year for purchasing things like inter, that had international prices and stuff. But so not perfect. But it, your points but, didn't circulate, though. But they, they, didn't, they didn't accumulate. No. Yeah. No, they didn't accumulate. They didn't circulate, and it incentivized people of multiple classes to uh, to. For, for, well, actually, I shouldn't say this. People from multiple class backgrounds. Let me be careful. Would have been a which had been a problem in China because China did kind of create a class background caste. Yeah, a bloodline system. That's part of the great proletarian cultural revolution is a backlash to this kind of entrenched um, Mm -hmm. pre-revolutionary sort of designation that people would carry with them and their descendants moving forward. You know. And the other thing the great proletarian cultural revolution did that pissed off a lot of the urban elites, but that I think we have to look at, that actually is part of why China has more social cohesion today Although my my friend Dr. Dung Bing Han says that this is going to continue, and I don't believe him, um, is that the rustification of the intellectuals was not to punish the intellectuals. Mm. Yes, it did have the nice calming effect of getting rid of some elements that were really beginning that that Mao had unleashed it that he didn't really want to deal with anymore. But what it also did do in a real way was start to equalize skills differences between regions. 
So Chinese education in the 70s would teach you mathematics, how to slaughter a pig, Chinese history, Western philosophy. Like, you would learn tons of things and in a non-specialized manner. And what we would hold that accountable for is it wasn't super specialized, so they weren't producing a lot of specialists at the time. Um, but, you know, there are people from this time period, and I will say Xi Jinping is one of them, mm-hmm. who can slaughter a pig and knows how to do advanced mathematics and also knows the lifestyle of the various classes right. in his society. In our society, in the West, you have to be a very special kind of person to have that access. Like, you and I are actually May- privileged enough to move between classes, but most people yeah. don't. Yeah, but it's just probably J.D. Vance might be yeah. one of the few people who well, could be I- an investment banker, but he's probably slaughtered a chicken once. Yeah, but of I mean, course, you yeah, have to make it into the ruling class from the very bottom rung in order to get that. I want to touch on a couple important – I'm sorry, finish. Good. No. no touch uh, on a couple co- important things. Yeah, a couple couple important things. Um, when we're – Talking about the work point system, when we're talking about all these various different experiments, people, and this is why we can judge uh, the reforms period, the opening up of reforms, the opening up of uh, China eventually to the capitalist West. First, the capitalist East, and then the, the capitalist West. We can say that politically that was bad, morally it was bad, or whatever. But people, again, need to understand the constraints that existed the socialist uh, developmental state that existed for those 25 years or so through the Great Leap Forward and through the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution was uh, a series of um, top-down orders, bottom-up experiments, uh, finding a way in order to create an industrial uh, economy outside of or, or without the market, essentially. So what's what was the task at hand? The task at hand, uh, as it's always been, of course, is to increase the amount of production in the in the countryside uh, in absolute terms and then eventually in relative terms in order to feed into um, the urban areas and start a process of industrialization that then redounds back on itself by uh, taking uh, the industrial implements that are created in the cities and then creating relative surplus value in the countryside and then making grain cheaper so that the workers in the cities uh, could have, you know, could, could be cheaper and, uh, and, and, and could therefore make more surplus in the cities. And so doing this, we know what this looks like when done uh, through primitive accumulation or what, how it was done in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. It requires massive, massive uh, attack on uh, the peasant class. But China, for various reasons, uh, wasn't willing to do that, right? And so instead you had uh, two and a half decades of trying to figure out a way to create the surplus necessary for industrialization without having to declare war on the peasantry. What the way that that was done in a non-market way was through variously at different times uh, a kind of um, autarky of various different collectives and communes on a small peasant level um, one-man management in the large um, industrial inheritance of uh, Manchuria, which Japan had industrialized before in these big, giant mass-producing factories, but also sort of uh, decentralized um, handicraft production systems all over the place where that surplus would be kicked up and the state would capture it and then distribute it around. But what essentially the system that, that, that was attempted was one based on mass mobilization, um, experimentation, voluntarism, 
right? It was a, was a big part of it too. And then finding some coordinate, some ability to coordinate all these productive activities happening without using markets, which essentially became as time went on, both the party itself, which kind of nucleically came down into these uh, different enterprises of workshops and villages, but then also eventually, especially after the 1960s and 70s, uh, the PLA, the People's uh, Liberation Army, the military, becomes the way that you coordinate an economy like this. The problem is, is that the virtuous cycle of um, relative surplus value creation never really kicked off under this. You never had uh, because of technical problems, the fact that they're cut off from the Soviet Union and its technical advisors and, and capital outlays starting in like the 1960s or so. Yeah, in the mid-1960s. They, mid-1960s. Yeah. For a variety of reasons, this sort of non-motive production could never take off in a way that, say, international capital could change an economy. So by the time the 1970s come and you've been racked by two great chaotic crises, of course, the uh, Great Leap Forward and then this long period of um of factionalism and yeah i mean we we must also just add china is fighting in four different wars in the late 50s through the through the 70s that people just forget about yeah so you have the china vietnamese war you have the two china uh, you have the two china Indian border wars you have china's involvement in uh in the korean war which while unofficial everybody now recognizes as a real thing yeah um you have um you have China's involvement in supporting the Khmer Rouge against the Vietnamese, which, you, frankly, is a world historic mistake. Like it's one well, of the, things the United really States used them too. <laughs> right? No. Well, the, the, the thing is, they're doing that in league with the U.S. Yeah. Like, so it's not which will again twist the ideologues into various pretzels here. But the point is, is that yeah, all these things are happening, all this chaos is happening, and meanwhile, because China is uh, as much as it became hermetic during this period, by and large, especially when ties were broken off and kind of like ends towards when the uh, Nixon goes to China in the early mid-70s or whatever, uh, things are changing in the rest of the capitalist world as well. So you have this interesting conjunction that happens with this sort of, there's like a belated transition to capitalism that takes place in the 1970s, which I think you were saying before when we're, we're going to talk about Africa and China later, fit in perfectly with the kind of crises and structural contradictions of global capitalism at that time, where all of a sudden now the way to break uh, from these periodic crises, from this uh, low um, uh, low productivity and stymied development, of course, was to slowly and then quickly open up to global capital, which is able to do these developmental things, um, let's just face it, with far less um, political um, management or uh, even political will than, say, a party trying to direct an industrialization process. Capital will come in and very quickly sort that out for you. And they needed foreign investment, and they needed access to food. While while I will say that, you know, there are famines in the Great Leap. Even people who defend the Great Leap Forward will tell you there were famines in the Great Leap Forward. Um, What I will say, though, is during this time period, like I told you earlier, we see the arresting of the life expectancy of the average Chinese person. We see the true consolidation of the all Chinese labor union and it's, and it really loses any militant base whatsoever. Um, uh, and that's interesting now because one of the things that, that starts is 
the Chinese proletariat even today is more likely to strike than the Western proletariat is. Like, let's be honest about that. Uh, and that's without any formal recognition. Mm-hmm. So, so, and, and there is a sense in which this great proletarian revolution, despite Xi Jinping's best efforts, was never eradicated in China. But what we have to look at is during this time period, so you have Western investment. Chinese education during that time period is largely privatized. Like mm. and and from and from the nineties to literally two years ago, if I I as a educational mercenary and as a former educational mercenary I can actually speak to this, um wanted to make quick buck off of off of the Chinese uh the Chinese bourgeoisie and professional class. I just go work at a school and they are highly unregulated mm. and that, and people just didn't get that. I'm like, uh, I'm like, well, why are they doing that? And, and uh, I'm like, yeah. And it's the wild, we used to refer to it as the wild East. Like, mm. like, yes, China is super controlled, but like the way it's letting like foreign educational entrepreneurs <clears throat> and this, that and stuff like run roughshod. And it doesn't make sense when it's also got the great firewall. Yes, it's got the great firewall, but we can come in and do pretty much whatever we like, as long as we accept that we're going to be spied on. Like, and they're not going to, they're generally not going to do anything to us unless we're like really doing something shitty. Like, to call it simply authoritarianism or talk about complete and total social control, like reactionaries and many liberals will talk about, it's just literally untrue. And in fact, it's not true. It's not true at all. And it's not, it's not coming down the pipe either because, you know, you, you have what people I think don't understand. This is what I've gotten. You've been there, but this is what I've got from reading it is that especially with the opening, with the reform period, you had something that kind of is a throwback to the way that the um, Chinese economy had even been before the revolution, a sort of organic uh, decentralized economy where the town and village enterprises become these, which start out as basically like the commune's property, uh, then are allowed to start to become something like a a semi-private enterprise Various different innovations in uh, political and economic um, uh, mechanics are allowed to sort of um, play themselves out on all this sort of decentralized level. Uh, and then event and with with, of course, the party still in power at the top, but with power very much distributed down. And then these sort of experiments they come up the pipe, and if they're seen to be successful, then they're kind of used throughout the rest of the country. So when workers uh, were doing these, a lot of these wildcat strikes over the last 20 years, oftentimes they're striking against <clears throat> local officials <clears throat> slash entrepreneurs um, against, you know, the local officials, but appealing to, you know, the, the, the national CPC in order to defend their rights. You know, right. so it's a Which, very it's very much a much more complicated and complex and de- distributed uh, power network. Than Which I know. hate to point out is predictable in Marxist lines of post-peasant economies, because uh, Marx would talk about this in, in response to Bakunin. Uh, Bakunin was talking about, well, the only reason like that the peasants love the, you know, love the ancien regime is because the ancien regime will occasionally kick around local nobility, which is actually true. And this kind of this kind of setup, uh, which goes all the way back to like ancient legalism, by the way, mm, like this is, mm. this has a this has a long tradition where uh, the central power outsources these things. Like almost China was never feudal like Western Europe was. I want people to understand that, but but almost like feudalism, 
you have high local regional powers who are often hated locally. Mm-hmm. The government is far away, so you appeal to the government. That has a pre-communist tradition. Uh, the Communist Party um, increased local autonomy in many ways, particularly and, – and part of the proletarian revolution, part of the tension of the Great Leap Forward was the center of the party – um, even even during even before this neoliberalization that we're talking about under under Dung was that was the, the center of the party often intervening against people trying to really push and break their system with crazy quotas and stuff. And great we forward, um, and then Mao would go and slap them around and become more popular. Um, and it was it was a kind of smart move in both building autonomy and ironically. And building a centralized authority figure. But what that means is you have a highly decentralized state with a central authority figure. And the central authority figure after Mao, up until probably now, has been the Politburo itself. So mm. the Politburo kind of collectively, um, while, you know, you can make a big deal out of Xi Jinping or Hu Jintao or the various other party leaders, um, the Politburo collectively um was really the power base um and um you could think of the party leader as the first among equals mm-hmm. and you know the premiers also being like the second um you know you can think about the partnership between Mao and Zhou and uh, Lai mm-hmm. um uh, etc et and so forth um one of the things that I think this leads us to look at and, and what I've often kind of struggled with myself and why it leads to incoherence in the West at the various times in which we've appealed to Maoism to kind of get us out of our own left cul-de-sacs. This is a long tradition, yeah. partly because um, is, I think Norman Finkelstein once wrote about this, um, that even leftists who were pro Maoist often did not know enough about what was going on in China to know what they were really supporting. So Maoist parties could be, could sound ultra-leftist, or they could sound exactly like official uh, ML poly, uh, parties um, in major nations. Like, for example, uh, the, the, the the RCP, even though it broke from the CPUSA in its pre-Avacian period, uh, really sounds like the, C, uh, the CPUSA or the Communist mm-hmm. Party of France. Um, it doesn't sound that different. Um and during the, the the way things spin out of control in a really interesting way for domestic politics, but in a kind of way that's really bad for communists and geopolitics during the 70s means that Maoists outside of China can try to make Maoism into whatever they want it to be. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's Protestant as opposed to Catholic. Right. Yeah. Um, and I also think this is in a time period where the economic co- uh, conflations in the West are not particularly obvious. So the two dominant forms of Marxism during this time period, uh, Maoism, um, Mao Zedong thought versus Mao, uh, anti-revisionist Marxist, uh, Marxist-Leninist Maoism, et cetera, et cetera, versus Trotskyism, they actually don't have a lot to say about political economy. Um, which is no, which is, no. which is actually kind of funny. Most um, people don't have much to say about political economy. Honestly, right. if you're going to claim that um, that China is socialist on its way to communism right now, then you have to neglect political economy a bit. You have to have a completely politicized vision of what a transition towards a different mode of production would be. It has to necessarily leave aside 
social relations. Yeah, um, someone like Arigi could maybe claim it a little bit and say 2001, 2002 when he's writing Adam Smith in Beijing. Mm-hmm. You can't really do that now. As I like when I, when I point out to people when they kind of like, oh, China's only semi-periphery, and I'm like, okay, if China's semi-peripherally, so is Germany. China is the largest producer in the world, and and uh, its its GDP eclipses the United States some years in its growth levels, and it will eclipse it in a real form probably pretty soon. Um, uh, it is not just integrated into the capitalist circuit. It is driving the capitalist circuit. Yeah, it is like, driving it. It is in the, and this is again why China can do things that the United States or Sweden or Germany could do 50 years ago and we can't do anymore. Right. So when you is, have that much surplus and you can capture some portion of it, you can do incredible things. Yeah, you can boss, you can boss your bourgeoisie around from the central committee. Hey folks, Sean here. Uh, this is the end of the extended preview of diving into the wreckage number four. Part one, uh, if you want to listen to the rest of it, uh, over two and a half hours of this great discussion, become a patron today at patreon.com slash the Antifada. Thank you, folks.